that season of prayer. We want to come back to our studies in the book of Hebrews now and want to kind of scan through chapter 3 and 4. We obviously won't be able to look at every part in detail, but we'll try to to take hold of some important truths here. But before we move into chapter 3, let's just think about what our writer has already told us. We're, we're, we're focusing on the theme that the phrase he mentions in chapter 2 at the beginning, so great a salvation. And if I was to ask each one of us, take an interview with each one of us tonight, those of us who are believers, do you consider your salvation to be great? Do you consider it to be special? Something to be treasured? And if you said yes, then I would come back and ask you, why? Why is your salvation so great to you personally? Why is it so important? Why is it so real? And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to bring these dear Hebrew Christians and then others. We believe that he's writing to a mixed multitude. There are Hebrews he's writing to. And, and there are Christians in the group. And there are those that are not sure. And there are those that are professing to be Christians but are thinking about going back to the temple system which was still standing and the sacrifices were still being offered at the time. And there was a real temptation for them. And so he's emphasizing to them the importance of understanding how great their salvation is, that their salvation is unparalleled, unequaled, and that the old covenant ritual and the old covenant sacrifices and the old covenant priesthood, as great as they all were, they pale in significance compared to Jesus Christ, the one who has purchase the salvation that we share. And isn't it a sad thing when those of us who profess to be Christians get tired of Jesus Christ, get tired of meditating on Him and thinking about Him and talking to Him. But that can happen. And trials and temptations in life can bring us to a place like that, just like these Hebrew Christians He's writing to. They thought the Lord was going to come. They were suffering. Their homes were being confiscated. Their other properties were being confiscated. That's told to us in chapter 10, right? Some of them have been imprisoned for their faith. They've been rejected by family members because they've identified with Jesus Christ whom the official religion in Israel has designated a false Messiah and a false prophet. So they paid a big price. And in their suffering... Part of the gospel was that the Lord was going to come back for them. And He hasn't come back. This is the second or third generation of Christians in the early church. The Lord hasn't come back and they're suffering for Him and they're getting discouraged. It's like we can get discouraged. So He's reminded them in chapter 1 of the majesty of our Lord, who He really is. He is God. And He came and spoke the Word of God, the message of God. We have that recorded in the Gospels, don't we? And then He purged the sins of these dear saints that are trusting in Him. 
and then ascended to the Father's right hand. And then those great seven passages dealing with His second coming when He comes to reign as King and His great power and glory that all testifies to His deity. And then He shifted in chapter 2 to His humanity that as man He came into the world. Why? We looked at that last night. Why did He come? According to Hebrews 2, for the suffering of death, that He might taste death for everyone. That's part of why He came. That's not all of why He came as He goes on to unfold in the letter. That's part of why He came. You said, that majestic, that holy, that awesome one He's described in chapter 1 left heaven's glory to come down to this earth knowing He would have to taste death and He did that anyway? That is what the Bible calls true love, doesn't it? In this is love. Laid down His life for His friends. And then in those great quotations we looked at last night from Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8, it would have been Wonderful. We just didn't have time to work into that whole section in Isaiah 8. It's a powerful chapter. We'll have to come back to that another time. But he comes down in chapter 2, verse 14, "...inasmuch then as the children have partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise, the Lord Jesus likewise, shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." Who has the power of death? Who is the one that constantly keeps us in fear of death all our lifetimes and subject to bondage? It is the devil. And our Lord comes in verse 15 as the great captain, the archegos of our salvation, to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Have you been delivered from that bondage tonight? Can you say in your own heart? This is serious. Focus on this. I know some are being entertained by the children and that's okay. But focus on this. This is important. Can you say in your heart of hearts tonight that you know you've been set free from bondage to fear of death? That you no longer fear death as your great enemy and stalker? That you can go home tonight and lay your head on your pillow and not be fearful of death if it should come tonight. Can you say that in your heart of hearts? If you're a born-again Christian and you're in fellowship with the Lord, you should be able to say that according to these passages. Understanding what Christ has done. It's a sad thing when genuine born-again Christians who have the hope of eternal life fear death like the world fears death. Because it denies what we profess to believe, doesn't it? And that's what faith tells us. Faith reminds us the captain of our salvation has released us and it's this picture of opening up a jail cell and, and taking us by the hand and leading us out. That we might do what? Sin to the hilt until He comes back? No, that we might live for Him. 
that we might be a testimony for Him, that we might help Him. That's where the participation in the Christian life comes in. That we might help Him, work with Him to see others get delivered. That's what the Christian life is about. And that's what being practical in holiness is about. It isn't to draw attention to ourselves, to say how holy I am and how much better a Christian I am than you. No, the whole focus is toward others. Holiness in the Christian life is to draw others to Christ. That's what our thinking has to be. It has to be, you know, let's get our eyes off ourselves and on the Lord Jesus and on others and think about others because our salvation has been taken care of. We know that. We've been released by the captain. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. There's no salvation. There's no redemption for the angels. The angels that chose to rebel against God will be in eternal perdition forever. The Lord did not give aid to them in the gospel. He gives aid to the seed of Abraham, those who live by faith like Abraham did. And therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren to be effective for his sacrifice to count. He had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So part of his high priesthood ministry is to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation means that God... Propitiation means, it's the mercy seat, that God is satisfied with Christ's sacrifice for your sins and mine. Do you know that? Are you certain about that? Because faith in the Word of God, this passage will help to deliver us and give us boldness and certainty in living the Christian life and testifying for the Lord. For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid or undergird or build up those who are being tempted, you and me. So God... While He has saved us and we know we're going to be glorified, He's left us here in this earth in sinful bodies. And He says, now live for Me. And we say, Lord, we can't. We've got temptations all around outside of us and we've got temptations inside of us. And the Lord says, I know. But you have a high priest in heaven. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have the Word of God in your hands and in your heart. And you have the avenue of prayer to your high priest that you might ask for grace to help in your time of need. In other words, I've provided for you. I can get you through the wilderness and into glory if you'll depend on me. And that's what trusting Jesus means, doesn't it? It means all of that. It means trusting all of God's provision for us. You think of what He's done. And the entire Godhead is involved. The Father is involved primarily in the disciplinary part of our lives, right? You'll get to that in chapter 12. As a father with a son, so that you should expect to be disciplined. 
by the Lord. And if you're not being disciplined, you're not a son. (laughs) That's what he says in chapter 12, right? Quoting from Proverbs 3. So the father had, and that's consistent with what we see in John 15. The one who does the pruning in the parable of the vine and the branches is whom? It's the father. Discipline, pruning, see? But he prunes, so what? So we become weak? So we can become ineffective? No, he prunes that we might be more fruitful. He takes away things in our lives that he knows keep us back. From living for Him, being fruitful for Him, reaching others for Him, growing in Him. And beloved, we need to be pruned, don't we? You can say amen. We need to be pruned. It's an ongoing work. We should be happy when He does it, when we see it through the eyes of the Scriptures. At first, if we see it through our own eyes, we get mad. How dare He take that away from me? How dare He take that person away from me? I was needing that person in my life. But maybe that person was a God instead of the Lord in our lives, right? And so He needed to take that person away to make us more trusting in Him and therefore more fruitful for Him. The Son has a role in our lives as our High Priest, as our Captain, as the Great Deliverer, as our Savior and our King. And the Holy Spirit is involved, as we'll see here in chapter 3 and 4. Primarily, His ministry is through the Word of God, reminding us of the Scriptures, enlightening the Scriptures that we can understand them, and helping us to use the Scriptures effectively in witness for the Lord. So that brings us to chapter 3. He just introduces the idea of high priesthood there at the end of chapter 2 in 17 and 18. So in chapter 3, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. You notice the word apostle here? It is a capital A in my Bible, and rightly so. Is that an awkward title for the Lord Jesus? Apostle means sent one. And it's one of the ways our Lord loves to describe Himself in the Gospel of John, doesn't He? I am the one sent from heaven. I'm the one sent of the Father. I'm the one sent of God. He'll go so far as to say, the words that I speak are not my words even. They're God's words speaking through me. Because I'm 100% totally surrendered and submitted to the Lord. Something you and I will never know in this life. Although we should seek to attain to it. We'll never know that kind of submission. Adam didn't render that kind of submission in the Garden of Eden, did he? But the second man, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus did. That's why I'm thankful to be identified with Him. I left the old Adam behind. When I trusted in Jesus Christ 30 years ago, I left the old man behind. Now I want to be like the new man. I want to look at Him and imitate Him and and, and adore Him. And as I gaze at Him, the Holy Spirit conforms me into His image from one glory to another. See, a miracle takes place as we read the Word of God and meditate especially on the character of Christ. 
the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, he's already developed the idea of apostle, the sent one. God has spoken. He was sent to speak the word of God, right? Chapter 1, verse 2. The high priesthood he will develop beginning in 4.14 and on into chapter 10. That's the bulk of the letter, isn't it? But he, he says he first needs to clarify by contrast the greatness of Christ compared to Moses. Again, for those of us who are Gentile Christians, we may not see Moses in the kind of light that these first century Hebrew Christians did. But for 1,500 years, Moses had been a prominent figure in the lives of the Jewish people and of their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. We can think even our own lives. The influence of godly men that over multiple generations, how they have continued to influence the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. But Moses especially, because at Mount Sinai, he got the Word of God and brought it to the people. In that sense, he was an apostle, wasn't he? But he says, when Moses was faithful to him who appointed him, Christ was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, the Lord Jesus, that is, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Another testimony to our Lord Jesus' deity, isn't it? And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house. And you read the account in the Pentateuch, and that's what we see. Moses, he had failures. Doesn't mean he didn't sin. Doesn't mean he didn't fail, right? He had some tragic failures. And he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land because of it. But overall, you look at Moses' life, would you say it was a fair assessment to say that he was faithful to God? Even in the midst of people that were going to stone him to death for being faithful? His own people? Several times. And Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, not as a servant, but as a son over his own house. So you see, Christ is greater than Moses. That's what he's reminding them. Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence of the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. What he's saying is, it's not so important how we began the Christian life as how we end our Christian lives. It's important to continue in the Christian life. You say, well, isn't that automatic? No, it's not. If you've been involved in personal ministry with people who have made professions, you know this. I could name for you uh, a dozen young people that I have come in contact with over the last 30 years who were involved in youth group, who played music and led the youth group and did all kinds of things, and then all of a sudden they took off. They left it all. And I talked to them. I interviewed them. I went after them. 
And I said, wait a minute. What about your baptism? What about your profession? What about your submission to the Lord? I didn't believe any of that, they said. Now they said that as mature 22, 23, 24-year-old adults. They weren't little babies anymore. And I almost had to pinch myself to believe. I'm not believing what I'm hearing. I knew these people. I worked with them in some cases. So I know it's possible. And all of those ones I'm speaking of right now, they are still away from God. Are they saved or are they not? We don't know. We don't know. But would that be a testimony that would draw a person in this world that has an addiction or some sort of terrible oppression in their lives, would they be drawn to the gospel by people who gave that kind of testimony of the power of Christ? No, they wouldn't be. They'd say they can get more from from their their counseling sessions in psychiatry than they can from Christ in that kind of a situation, wouldn't they? They'd say, I can go to my doctor and get more drugs that will get me through my problems than to trust in Christ if that's what happens to them. So you see how important continuance is? And you see how important it is for those involved in pastoral shepherding ministry to make sure to work with Christ as the over-shepherd, the elders as the under-shepherds, to make sure that these people who profess to be Christians are making it through, are progressing, are growing. Because it's very real. And that's what he's going to do here. He's going to go into now his second warning passage. Therefore, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, today, today if you are hearing God's voice speaking to you through His Word, do not harden your heart, is what he's saying. Don't harden your heart against God. You see how God is taking the initiative as a sovereign one, but He's leaving room for human responsibility. He's waiting for the response. And He's saying, you as people can harden your hearts to the voice of God. You say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm a Christian. It can apply by way of application. If we don't yield our hearts to the Lord and His Scriptures every day, then we are hardening our hearts potentially against Him. Isn't that true? Isn't that logical? And if we're hardening our hearts against Him, do you think that's going to work for good in our lives? You think the Lord was complimenting Paul when He said, Why are you kicking against the goads? See, Paul was kicking against, he was stiff-arming God. You say, can a person do that? Can a human being do that with God? Yeah. Now to me again, this is fascinating. The technique. The technique the writer uses here. The particular passage he goes to and how he uses it to me is fascinating. Now, many of you probably have looked. You've already seen. This is Psalm 95. Now, you remember how Psalm 95 begins? We sing it all the time. Come, let us worship. 
and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker. That's Psalm 95. That doesn't look like what he's talking... Let's go back and look at it then. In Psalm 95, it's in a section of Psalms. We call them kingdom Psalms. Beginning in Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord. These kingdom psalms had a reference. They were sung in terms of the Davidic kingdom. But even as the Jews sang them in, time, in the time of David and the Davidic kings that followed him, they knew these would not be fulfilled ultimately until Messiah reigned. And that's why they say, Yahweh, majesty, Yahweh will reign. The Lord reigns. But he's saying it in the present tense. The Lord, that won't, you won't be able to say that for sure until he's reigning on this earth in the kingdom, right? And then Psalm 94, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. That will happen when he comes back. Can you agree with that psalmist there? Are you pleading and praying for him to shine forth? to rend the heavens and come down. And then in Psalm 95 here, we'll look at it. And then Psalm 96, O sing to the Lord a new song. Those new song passages dealing with regeneration. That's the new song. Regeneration practically now is born again creatures, but the whole earth is going to be regenerated. According to Matthew 19. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Psalm 98, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. You get the picture. So we come back to Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And all the way down through verse 7. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture the sheep of His hand. And then there's a total shift that happens in this psalm. Do you see that? Do you notice it happens in the middle of a verse? <coughs> in the middle of verse 7. If you have a Bible, look at it and see it with your own eyes. Don't take my word for it. You notice in the middle of verse 7, he hasn't even gotten to verse 8, he begins, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in... The rebellion. Oh, he, they say, why do you have to bring that up? That is the, the day of Israel, national Israel's humiliation. That's when the nation of Israel at Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 14 rejected the word and will of God. They refused to go in and to trust the Lord, right? They came right up to the brink. They had seen His miracles. They had seen Him work with the plagues in Egypt. They had seen the deliverance at the Passover. They had seen the deliverance at the Red Sea. They had seen Him provide water from the rock and manna, miraculous food, the food of angels while they were in the wilderness. They had seen Him provide all of these things. And then the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory and the presence of God. And now they were marching into the land and they got to Kadesh Barnea and they heard the spy report. And they asked for the spies. You go back and compare numbers in Deuteronomy. They wanted the spies. God didn't... They, 
They didn't need any spies to go and spy out the land. That was a breach in faith, wasn't it? God allowed them to do it. They didn't need spies. They needed to trust the Lord. Just like you and I don't need to say, Lord, I will serve you for the next two years if you'll tell me what's coming. Give me a spy to go out and spy out what's going to happen in the next two years and then I'll decide whether I really want to serve you and surrender. I may want to go back to my old life if I knew what was coming. Beloved, you don't want to know what's coming. I don't want to know what's coming. We can look back, each one of us. I can look back in my life. If... Five years ago, the Lord had shown me what was going to happen in the next five years. I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I wouldn't have been able to process it. There wasn't a framework for me to put it into, to understand it. And it would have caused fear and confusion. And God knows that. You remember the great story uh, Corey Ten Boom told? When she is a young girl, I think she was like 12... Went to, they lived in Harlem, you know, a smaller town outside of Amsterdam in Holland. And they went to Amsterdam in the train because he had some business there and he brought her along. She wanted to go along with daddy. So he gave her the ticket. She said, Daddy, this is the ticket for one way. What about the ticket to come home? I don't want to be stuck in Amsterdam. You remember what he said? I'll give you that ticket when you need it. You don't need it yet. You're not even in Amsterdam yet. You don't need it yet. A good father, he knew she could lose the ticket, right? She's just a child. He's protecting her. Someone could steal the ticket from her. He couldn't afford to buy her another ticket. Then she would have been stuck in Amsterdam. He knew, no. When we get ready to come home, then I'll give you the ticket. I'll give you the grace... When you need it. You say, well, I don't have the grace to die for the Lord. I don't know if I could do that. Well, you're not dying right now. You don't need that grace. So why are you asking for it now? Unless you know that you're dying and for sure you're dying. And then, according to Hebrews 4.14, you should be asking for that grace. Give me the grace to honor you all the way through. To be loyal to you right to the end, right to the deathbed when I'm looking up at the ceiling and looking up the sky beyond it and saying, Lord, I still love you. I'm still faithful to you. I'm not going to give up on you. You have not given up on me. This great psalm. What was the problem in the rebellion? Two things. Let me just take you back to uh, very quickly. Two little quick passages. One in Numbers 14. And I really want you to see these with your own eyes. In Numbers 14, this was where the rebellion occurred. Verse 22. Because all these men... This is what God is saying. The Lord said in verse 20, right? Because all these men, verse 22, who have seen My glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have put me to the test now these ten times, and have not heeded my voice. Remember what the Lord Jesus told the devil in the wilderness? You're not supposed to test God, right? 
God's not happy when we test Him. When we know from the Word of God what we're supposed to do, and we say, Lord, I'm going to push the edge and see if You'll be gracious to me. That's testing God. Now, thankfully, the Lord is gracious with us many, many times when we do that, but there does come a point like He did here where He says, You shall not enter My rest. Now, we don't know whether the whole generation, the whole generation certainly did not enter but I, I doubt if it's true that all of them didn't believe. I think a lot of them just went along with the spies' report and the leaders, the false leaders, who gave the false report. But either way, it's serious enough, isn't it? One other passage in Exodus chapter 6, which we may not be aware of, which is very important because he's going to call this message in Hebrews 4, he's going to call this the gospel. We have heard the gospel. They heard a gospel message too. And in Exodus 6, verse 6 through 8, mark that down if you don't have a Bible, and please go back and look at it, because this is the issue in our day, I think. This is the issue. There are many that want deliverance from Egypt, but they don't want to serve the Lord in the promised land. The gospel message was what? Verse 6, Say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you. So you see that I will bring you out from, I will rescue, and I will redeem. Now for us, it's not Egypt. It's bondage to sin and death and eternal judgment, right? That He brings us out from in conversion. I will take you as my people and I will be your God and then you shall know that I am the Lord who brings you out. And then look at the word in verse 8. How does verse 8 begin in your Bible? And. So verse 8 is part of verse 6 and 7, the message. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promised land. The gospel message was... I will bring you out, then I might bring you in. You with me? That's what it was for them. And for us, that the message is, I will bring you out, then I might bring you in. I'll bring you out from the bondage to sin and death and judgment and bring you into the life of holiness and service and glorifying me and worshiping me. That's the gospel. How many times have we just given half that story? The first half sounds great, man. Bonded, deliverance from bondage. Yeah, I want that. They all said, yeah. Even the mixed multitude, we read about them in Numbers 11. They were a mixed multitude. They all said, yeah, boy, we're all for that. He said, but then I'm going to bring you into the land. Oh, no, no. I'm not going into that land. There are giants in there. The Anakim are in there. And the city, they're walled cities. They're walled to heaven. That's a, that's a hyperbole, right? They were high walls. They weren't walled literally to heaven. But they looked like they were impenetrable fortresses there and giants there. And, and yeah, the grapes from the Valley of Eskol were huge and the fruitfulness of the land was great, but it's not safe. So we're not going in. We're going back. 
to Egypt, to the old life. Now, they really couldn't get back because they couldn't cross the Red Sea, could they? (laughs) The Lord closed the waters back up, didn't He? But they thought they could get back. So what did the Lord do? He said, you know, one of the things they did and slighted the character of God, they said, we're more concerned about our children than God is. If we bring our children in there, our children will die and we're going to blame God for it. You know what God says? This is what we call talionic justice. He gives the judgment in proportion to the crime. He says, you know what? He says, you're not going in, but your children whom you said I didn't care about, I'm going to bring them in. (laughs) They will go in and they did under Joshua, didn't they? So what does the writer to Hebrews say? He says, Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in turning away from, departing from the living God. Verse 12. Now there's a sense here we're making a a dual application, right? The primary application here is in conversion. It's in people coming to understand their need for Christ, the gospel, that He's the only provision, and then not asking Him to save them. Turning back. Going back to the pleasures of sin for a season. That's the primary application here. And for them, their carcasses will die in the wilderness. But there's a secondary application for those of us who are believers... We too can harden our hearts, can't we? Not in a permanent sense, but in a temporary sense in terms of our fellowship and service for the Lord. And there's a real danger here because our hearts, our old nature, it's desperately wicked, right? Do you believe that? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10? Who can know it? It's deceitful and desperately wicked. Why do you want to trust something like that? Why do you want to trust your feelings? Why do you want to trust your intuition? Why do you want to trust human wisdom when it's contaminated like that by sin? You with me? Your intuition. You know, when we have a a hunch, an intuitive sense of what the right thing to do, if it's not guided by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, can lead us to do the wrong thing. Our feelings, every, I think we all know by now how what a roller coaster they are. Up and down and up and down all the time. There's no steadiness in the Christian life when we just follow our feelings all the time. Our minds, God made us where the mind is to lead the feelings. And the mind is to lead the will. And the will agrees with the Word of God even if the feelings don't. And ask God to help us with the feelings after. You with me on that? There are a lot of things that we know is the right thing to do, but we have a feeling we don't feel it's right. Well, don't rely on your feelings. They are unreliable. Tell your feelings that the Holy Spirit's the boss in your life, not your feelings anymore. The Holy Spirit's the ruler in your life, 
Not the world's wisdom anymore. Not your old ideas of mankind and the world and God. Subject all that trash, if you will, because compared to the glory of God and the Word of God, it is trash, isn't it? Subject all of that to the will and purpose of God in His Word. That's what he's saying. He's saying today, if you will hear His voice. The fascinating thing about this psalm he's quoting was written... Now he says, the Holy Spirit says it in verse 7 of chapter 3, but down in verse 7 of chapter 4 he says that David says it. Who said it then? Both and. David said it and wrote it, and he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But when David writes it, and it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. You see what he's saying? The Word of God, it isn't when we... And that's why I, I try to be careful and we need to be careful when we teach... Well, the Paul in Paul's epistles, for instance, Paul says this, and in Peter, Peter says this. Well, that helps a little bit. Be careful. It's the Holy Spirit speaking. It isn't Paul. It isn't just Peter. Yes, he used them, but it's God speaking. God says this is a good way to say And I try to do that sometimes for shock value, but also to remind me and all of us that this is the Word of God. This isn't just the ideas of some man. It's the Word of God. And who are you going to hide from if, you, if you're turning away from God? Psalm 139. Where do you go? Where can I hide from your spirit? You can't. Don't even try. Who would want to when you see so great a salvation He's given to us? Well, I went over. I'm sorry. There's a lot more that could be said here. I'll just remind, just to close, what is he? God's provision. What has He given to us? You know, I think of, I think it, I was listening the other day, casting crowns. You know, slow fade. It's a slow fade. When when we begin to turn away from God, right? It's a slow fade when daddies turn away from God. It's a slow fade when babies turn away. And you remember how they close that song? And it brings me to tears every time I hear it. They have a little child saying, Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's just a little children's song. But when you hear a little child singing it and you think about daddies who have fallen away and hurt the children and hurt the mamas and you think of children turning away from God, hurting the family. And what did they forget? They forgot it was a slow fade. That that fade away from God, it's a slow drift. It's almost imperceptible at first, but then it gets more graphic as it goes on. And then it gets to a point of no return, which is serious. Because that person is going to spend eternity in the bad place. And it's their fault. They can't blame God. They can't blame mommy and daddy. They can't blame their elders. They can't blame anybody. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment, I should say. There is nobody you're going to be able to blame but yourself and myself. 
We all stand individually before God. God's made provision. He sent His Son from heaven. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. What more do you need to know God loves you? But not only that, He sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts with the Word of God. That's what verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4 are talking about. That's why those verses, you say, well, how does that fit in? I wanted to get to that. We ran out of time. But it's powerful how those two verses, 12 and 13 of chapter 4, fit into this whole section. There's a unity of thought and flow here. And then He's given us the avenue of prayer. Chapter 4, 14 to 16. We have a high priest that's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Aren't you glad? He can relate to us. I mean, I relate a lot better to a man with a nose and ears and eyes and feet like me than I do to a ghost or a cloud, a shining cloud or a super moon shining. I mean, that's great, but I don't relate to that. It's not me. It's not a human being. Jesus Christ became a man so He could be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses and infirmities and even endured temptation so He understands. You know why He did that? So our faith would have more certainty and we'd go to Him in our time of need. I don't know about you, but when I see those verses in that context, I feel rebuked. Because I'm not going to Him like that. And it's my own fault. And if you're not going to Him like that, it's your own fault. Are you with me? God saying today, if you hear my voice in the Scriptures, harden not your hearts. Open your hearts. Soften your hearts. Listen to what I'm telling you. I've given you everything you need for life and salvation in my Son. Turn to Him then. Go to Him then. Trust in Him. And be useful for Him. And a blessing to others. Wow. What a Gospel. And what a God. So great is salvation. Father, we thank You for it. We confess to You tonight. I confess to You tonight, speaking for myself anyway. We don't value this Gospel like we should. I don't. We don't enter into all that You have for us like we should. I don't. And I pray, O oh Lord, for myself, for all of us tonight, that we would put a marker down. Joshua said, put a marker down right here. <laughs> Today, if you hear His voice, harden not your hearts. Today, the Lord shall be the one who guides my life through His Word and His Spirit. And I'll avail myself of the priesthood of Christ, going to Him for grace to help in time of need. Father, Thank you for all your loving provision. You are so awesome and wonderful. Be with us as we travel home tonight and bless each one that's here and those who weren't able to be here that wanted to be here. Bless them. And those who didn't care about being here, bless them too. Because that's what love would ask. And Lord, we thank you.
the privilege of serving you in this world until you come. Oh, help us to be joyful sons and daughters of the living God. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.